Let's allow God's word to take root as we read it together. Job chapter 20. Then Zophar, the Namathite, answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me, because of my haste within me. I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on earth, that the exulting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment. Though his height mount up to the heavens, and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. And it is the venom of cobras within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him. He will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. He will give back the fruit of his toil and will not swallow it down. From the profit of his trading, he will get no enjoyment. For he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build because he knew no contentment in his belly. He will not let anything in which he delights escape him. There was nothing left after he had eaten. Therefore, his prosperity will not endure. In the fullness of his suffering, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone in misery will come against him to fill his belly to the full. God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. He will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. It is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Terrors come upon him. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasures. The fire not fanned will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. Then Job answered and said, keep listening to my words and let this be your comfort. Bear with me and I will speak and after I have spoken, mock on. For as for me, in, is my complaint against man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled. And lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember, I am dismayed. And shuddering seizes my flesh. Excuse me a second here. Why do the wicked live? Reach old age and grow mighty in power. Their offspring are established in the presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice at the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace They go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the mighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. 
How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that their calamity comes upon them, that God distributes pains in his anger, that they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away? You say God stores up their iniquity for their children. Let him pay it out to them that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what do they care for their houses after them when the number of their months is cut off? Will any teach God knowledge, seeing that he judges those who are on high? One dies, uh, is in full, of, full vigor, being holy at ease and secure, his pails full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul. Never having tasted prosperity, they lie down alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent of the, in which the wicked lived? Have you not asked those who traveled the roads? And do you not accept their testimony that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he is rescued in the day of wrath? Who declares his ways to his face? And who repays him for what he's done? When he is carried to the grave, watch is kept over his tomb. The clods of the valley are sweet to him. All mankind follows after him. And those who go before him are innumerable. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. Lord, we, we need help this morning to wrap our minds and our hearts around your scriptures today. We're thankful for the book of Job that has given us insight into our own tendency to abandon you or to question you or to think badly of you simply because we don't hear the answers that we want to hear. And Lord, we recognize in this story also, Lord, that, that there are things at play that maybe we don't see, but you are fully aware of. And so, Lord, we ask now as you minister this text to our souls that you would give us wisdom and insight, humility, Lord, teachable spirit, and that I, as your messenger, will simply reflect the truth of your text and press it home to the hearts of believers. Lord, just work in us today, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, as you know, I have typically been going through the book of Job and taking one section at a time. But there's a reason why I'm bringing these two speeches together, the speech here of Zophar and the speech of Job, because the reality is that they run very much in parallel to each other. Zophar speaks, Job speaks. What Zophar is saying, Job ultimately is counteracting. Now, Zophar's second speech sounds very much like a broken record. And I thought to myself, even in writing that down, that I might actually have to explain what a record is <laughs> and what it means to be a broken record. So for those of you younger generation who may not have seen a record, it's basically a, uh, you know, a, a piece of vinyl that's round, and it used to be old technology that there would be grooves in this record, and you'd use this, this, uh, this diamond tip that actually would run through these grooves and, and the technology was such as it would pick up the sound in these grooves. But every once in a while, for those of you that had records, you did not want to scratch your record because what would happen is you'd get to a certain point and then the tip would bounce and it would just repeat it, right? So it would be like, my needle is stuck, my needle is stuck, my needle is stuck, my needle is stuck. And that's how we get this whole idea of a broken record. The idea, the expression means that something is being repeated over and over and over and over again, and it will not stop until someone comes along and lifts up the little 
piece of that record player and resets it down so that the, the song can continue. All right? So you young folk just learned something new today that you never knew about life at all. So what we have here then is a broken record. It's like he and his two associates, Eliphaz and Bildad, are stuck in a rut and just keep repeating themselves by banging on the same drum. And if you are convinced of a truth and you share it and you feel like you're not being heard, what do you do? Well, you repeat yourself. But then sometimes you repeat yourselves slower, just in case they didn't hear you. And then you repeat yourselves louder. Somehow decibel levels bring clarity to someone's thinking. And sometimes you repeat them with greater threats. Like, I can't believe you're not listening to what I'm saying. And sometimes with elevated seriousness. And I think there's been a progression here by Job's friends in preaching their gospel of the doctrine of retribution. And each time Job is saying, it's not so. I know that I'm innocent. And they're like banging their heads against the wall saying, why doesn't he listen? And then another friend says, let me have a, you know, let me have a turn. And the decibel is turned up a little bit more, or he speaks a little bit slower, or there's a little bit more impatience in the tone. And we're getting to a place now where what, what, what Zophar is saying isn't that much different than what has already been said. He's just repeating the same mantra in a different way, using different analogies, but it's the same ultimate point. And Job's friends don't believe that they are being listened to. Now, we must understand this. The message from Job's friends has been heard by Job, but it has not been embraced by Job. And there's a difference between listening to someone and actually embracing what they're saying because you might disagree with what they're saying. So the problem is that they're convinced that Job is suffering justly because of some sin in his life, but Job is convinced that he is innocent and therefore suffering unjustly. So in chapter 20, the broken record continues to play, but louder and with a more impatient tone. Zophar continues to hammer the nail that if Job doesn't listen, he'll be counted with the wicked. In chapter 21, Job gives his friends pushback and exposes what his friends believe and are trying to convince him of as false. And he says, it's empty nothings. So in this passage, we see how Job, in his renewed faith, we saw that in chapter 19, where he rises up out of this, this kind of barrage from his friends and the suffering he is in to say, I know that my Redeemer lives. And so he is invigorated by his faith. Now, in the face of what his friend Zophar is saying to him, the levels are elevated, but Job now rises up and strengthens him to stand up to the false teaching of his friends. And so our, our kind of theme for this morning, as we look at these passages, the strength of grounded faith to stand up uh, to the false teaching of the world. So what's happening here with Job. And I say the world because more and more as I'm studying through Job, I'm realizing that the, the ideology that Job's friends are hammering is not a biblical worldview ideology. It is a religious ideology. It is a common man ideology. And it may be laced with some biblical truth along the way. It may have some ideas of, of God in accurate form in some way, shape, or form. But it is not rooted in a biblical understanding of who God is and how he actually works. So, this morning we want to begin by looking at Zophar's severe warning. Now let's just pick it up there at verse 2. Therefore, my thoughts answer me, 
Because of my haste within me, I hear censure that insults me. And out of my understanding, a spirit answers me. So, so far, the Namathite answers Job, but it's clear that he is both irritated, that's the idea of this word haste, impatience, and he is insulted by what he has been hearing from Job. Okay? So once again, Zophar paints the picture of the destruction of the wicked to show Job what will happen if he doesn't repent of his sins. In his mind, everything the wicked do will turn out for ruin. They might experience joy for a season, but it won't last for long. Ruin is coming. And so Zophar begins by explaining God to Job. He says this, what I'm telling you is from of old. It's from since man was placed on the earth. In other words, what I'm telling you is what has always been true. Those who sin will be destroyed. Those who are righteous will be blessed. It's just the way the world works. It's God's way, and it's been from the beginning. So, Job, you're bucking the system by not listening to us and doing what we're saying. You're denying the truth. You're insulting your friends. You're going against the history of mankind, and you are behaving like a wicked man. So stop your denials and listen to your friends. Remember, we came here to help, to comfort you, and to counsel you. And what we're saying is the truth. And so then he presents... Three marks of the wicked men. The first mark is this. He says basically this. Their lives will be brief. And this is verses 4 through 11. Job, the wicked man, will have joy and prosperity for a brief moment, but it will be short-lived. He might rise up to the clouds, but he will perish forever like his own dung. It's a lovely picture, isn't it? I mean, it's like you don't usually, you know, you don't usually protect that. You usually kind of like want to get rid of it as quickly as possible. That's why we flush our toilets, all right? And when people see the wicked man, they will wonder who he is. His rise is so quick, and his demise is also so fast. So he will be forgotten. His existence will be like a dream that, that can't be found. And the picture here, you know what it's like where you're, you're, you're sleeping and you're, you're in this wonderful story and it's exciting and it's powerful and, and you wake up from it and you're like, oh, there's some, there's some things I remember from this dream, but it's not all there. And you're like, oh, that was, that was kind of a, you know, in another world and it was nice and it was great. Can I just try and remember some of it so I can get it? And it just all just goes... And it's gone. That's what he's saying. This is what it's like. His existence will be like this dream that can't be found or a vision that is forgotten. After his death, the truth about his crimes will be known. His demise will affect his family and his children will have to pay back the people he has robbed. He was once a man of vigor, full of life, but eventually his lifeless body will die in the grave. I'm just, I'm just unpacking what is being said here in these verses. The wicked may have joy, but their end will come swiftly, he says. He may climb quickly, but his fall will be great and swift. So, according to Zophar, the wicked die young when they least expect it. Now, Zophar wasn't talking about the natural consequences of sin. He, he was talking about the judgment of God upon the wicked. So it's not like, you know, someone, you know, goes out and does something foolish and there's a natural consequence. He's talking about this person's been wicked, been wicked, been wicked. I'm going to punish him. All right? So Zophar and his two friends were certain that Job was a hypocrite, that his pious life was only a veneer to cover his secret sins. So his suffering is evidence of his sin and his wickedness. In their mind, that's how the system works. You're sinning, therefore you're wicked, 
or therefore you're suffering, and that is evidence of the fact that you are wicked. So the first mark is this. Their lives will be brief. Secondly, their joy will be temporary. Now, everything in this next section, verses 12 through 23, is drawing on the simple image of eating. Wicked men enjoy sin the way people enjoy food. I remember when I went to Ukraine and uh, we ordered hot chocolate. And they come out with chocolate that is hot. I mean, it's literally chocolate in a coffee cup and it's molten chocolate, all right? And you throw nuts and stuff in there and it's wonderful, okay? <laughs> Especially with nuts. And you, you, know, you take a bite, and it's just like, oh, you just take your time, and you just let it sit there for a while, because it's just a mouthful of warm, molten, nutty chocolate. It's great. You don't just like gobble it down and say, on to the next thing. You want to taste it. You want to enjoy it. I mean, you want to you get the most out of it. Right? And, and that's the picture here. The wicked men enjoy sin the way people enjoy food. They keep the food in their mouth where they can taste it before swallowing. In fact, he enjoys sin so much that he can't even make himself swallow it. That's the picture that's going on here. But eventually that delicious food in his mouth becomes a cobra's poison in his system. And it churns his stomach and he vomits it all out. That's the picture he's painting here. So what the wicked man doesn't know is that while he has been enjoying his sin, he has been bitten by a poisonous viper and only has death to look forward to. That's what Zophar is saying about the wicked. And not only does the wicked man get sick from his sin, but as a result, he does not enjoy the blessing of everyday life because he is so sick, he can't. And that's why it says... He will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. What was it that the, the spies said when they went into the promised land? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It, there wasn't actually milk flowing down the Jordan River. These are expressions that saying it is full of prosperity. This is a wonderful piece of land. But the wicked men so far is saying cannot look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. These are blessings from God, and they will not receive these kinds of blessings. Why? Because their bellies are full of poison. Finally, the wicked man is not able to enjoy or swallow many of the things he's labored for. His belly of sin will be full of his sin, but his joy will only be temporary. Why? Because God will send his judgment on him. This is what Zophar is saying. The wicked lives will be brief. Their joy will only be temporary. And then he moves on. He says their death will be painful. Notice the sharp imagery, no pun intended, used to describe how God pursues the wicked in judgment. It moves from death to treasure to judgment. He will flee from an iron weapon a bronze arrow will strike him through. This is verse 24. It is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Terror has come upon him. It's a delightful section of scripture, isn't it? That's the death. Notice what happens now to the treasure or his possessions. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasure. A fire is not fanned. Uh, uh, a fire not fanned will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. And then the heavens will reveal his iniquities. This is the judgment of God. So he'll be pierced through with an arrow made of bronze. His treasures and possessions will be consumed by fire. Heaven will expose his sin and will usher in his judgment. So Zophar's purpose in preaching the sermon is to both warn and implicate Job. He's saying that if Job does not listen to the counsel of his, these three friends, he will be pursued by God in this way. But now when Zophar speaks of God's as a warrior pursuing Job, um, it's also because Job has described God as a warrior who is pursuing him. 
That happened in Job chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. But Zophar is saying that God will pursue you because you are guilty of sin, whereas Job was saying, he's pursuing me and I'm innocent. So Zophar is saying, the wicked people's life will perish, be brief. Wicked men will not prosper. Wicked men will be pursued and meet their judgment. Now, this is the last that we hear from this particular friend. And, and the tone that Zophar brings to this speech is, is a harsh tone. It's an impatient tone. And he's kind of laying it all out there. He's saying, Job, since you won't listen, you are headed for death and judgment. And then he comes to his conclusion. And that conclusion is found in verse 29. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. Now, walk through that briefly, because I just want you to see, he's just hammering the same nail, but just in different ways, isn't he? All right? You sin, and because you sin, you suffer, and because you're suffering, that proves then that you are a wicked person. So you need to, you know, you need to listen to us, and you need to change your ways. The fact that you're breathing, Job, is to your benefit because there may still be some hope for you. But now let's think about some problems with Zophar's speech. First of all, it's selective. One of the problems with, with the wisdom of Job's friends is that they are selective in their arguments to suit their own theological view. They choose to use limited evidence to make their case. They produce only the facts that help them rather than look at the whole picture of evidence that would give shape to their perspective. And friends, it's a reminder that to be a faithful follower of Christ, we cannot be closed-minded and unwilling to consider the difficult questions of this world. In other words, we cannot be selective in just picking and choosing ideas out there to serve our own purposes. And that's what Job's friends are doing here. We have to be willing to check our systems of thinking to make sure that they are aligned with Scripture. Just because a certain practice is culturally acceptable, has been the wisdom of the world for a period of time, doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. Right? They were selective. They were choosing only what they wanted to kind of paint the picture of the wicked. And we'll see Job actually respond to that. Secondly, his speech is without hope. There's no hint in Zophar's speech that the wicked might repent, or make amends, or somehow find favor with God. There's no compassion. And, and, and Zophar's God, there seems to be no mercy. The wicked man is doomed and he can't change the forces of the universe. They're locked in without any help of an advocate, of a mediator, or a redeemer. Now you have to understand, Zophar is speaking right after Job has looked his three friends in the face and said, I know that my redeemer lives. But there's, there's no perspective of that. And, and I think this also, the third point here is it flows out of that, and that is his, his focus is just primarily earthly. He's not really thinking about what happens in the afterlife. I know he talks about the judgment of God, but it seems to be kind of a judgment of God now as opposed to, as opposed into the future. Right? What, what happens in Psalm 1, for example, you have the picture of the, 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 the righteous man and, and, and the wicked man, the, the wise and the ungodly. And what it says there at the end of it is that the, uh, the ungodly will not stand in the day of judgment. In other words, there's going to be a day after you die when you stand before God in judgment and the wicked will not be able to stand up then. And the reality is, friends, God's judgment now is not so much our concern. It's God's judgment then that is of more concern. 
So there's a sense in which Zophar, and in particular his friends, are only thinking about the here and now. They're only thinking about the demise of the wicked on the earth. And that's a very limited perspective. Now, let's move from this, from Zophar's severe warning, to Job's stern correction. If we turn our attention to Job's response, you'll notice that he is refuting Zophar's claims point by point. Zophar had claimed that the lives of the wicked would be brief. And Job says, that is not so, they often live long lives. We'll see that. Zophar claims that the joy of the wicked will only be temporary. And Job says, that's not so, they often live happy lives and avoid suffering. And Zophar claimed that the death of the wicked would be painful. And Job says, that's not so. They typically die just like everyone else. So Job is going point by point, tearing Zophar's speech to shreds and ultimately dismantling the doctrine of retribution that they have been preaching. But before Job takes on their faulty worldview, he makes an appeal to his friends to let them know how he feels. We'll call this the introduction. Look at verses 2 and 3. Keep listening to my words, he says, and let this be your comfort. Bear with me, and I will speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. So Job begins his appeal by saying, if you really want to bring comfort to me, please continue to listen to my words, and don't shut your ears to me. Now here his words are a window to how much his relationship with his friends has quickly deteriorated. There's a, there's a polarizing going on. And he's appealing to say, listen, can we stop this aggression? Can we stop your hammering of this doctrine of retribution and just listen to what I have to say. Once I've said what I've said, if you want to continue to mock, that's fine. But can you please open your ears? The Greek philosopher Zeno said, the reason why we have two ears and only one mouth is that we may listen more and talk less. Something to be reminded of, right? And that's what he's appealing to his friends for. So here, here, that was his, sorry, that was his first point was simply to say, please listen to me. But notice, after that, in verses 4 through 6, he goes on and says, ask for me, is my complaint against man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled and lay your hand over my mouth. When I remember I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. Even here in this introduction, not only is he saying, listen to me, but he's also saying, will you please remember that this person who is here sitting in front of you is suffering? My complaint is not against man, but by implication, he's saying it's against God. It wasn't man who had brought about his suffering and as such cannot take it away. Only God can do that. That is why I have been impatient, because I have appealed to God for answers, and all I get is silence. But friends, you have been speaking to me, and you've been speaking to me harshly, and as such, you have lost your focus. You have lost your compassion. Look at me. Look what I'm going through. Look at the suffering I've experienced. And be appalled. Be in shock over my condition, my loss and my suffering. Let what I'm going through stir your heart to see me as your suffering friend once again. And it just appears, friends, that what's happening here is that Job's friends have become so engrossed in preaching their doctrine of retribution to Job that they have forgotten that their friends sat before them in agony, grief, and loss. And it's a reminder to us 
that even when we are seeking to minister to others, that we can shift our focus away from the struggle of suffering because it is being eclipsed by what we feel we have to say to be theologically accurate or to somehow minister the word. And we forget that the people that we're talking to are struggling and hurting because we're in the midst of giving our spiel. And he's saying, will you please look at me once again and be reminded of where I am and what I am going through. So if you want to comfort me, if you care about me, if you really want to help me, please listen to what I have to say. And he has three points also. Point number one, the wicked often live long. You've said that the life of the wicked will be brief, but where's the evidence for that? Isn't the opposite true? Look at verse 7. Why do the wicked live? Reach old age. Grow mighty in power. Isn't it true that the wicked live to a ripe old age and also become very powerful? Isn't their life full of all kinds of securities? So he now begins to list some securities. There's the security and the prosperity of the wicked. He says, their children are healthy and grow up before their eyes. They do well in school. They get good jobs. They have families. They're established in their communities. But not only are their children healthy, their homes are safe from fear. They prosper in their homes. There's no punishing hand of God upon their lives at that point in time. But not only that, look at verse 10. Their bulls breed without fail. Their cows calve and do not miscarry. In other words, their business prospers. And verses 11 down through, the, through, through verse 13, they are a happy people. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. I mean, you can see these children are going out, they're in the yard and they're playing and they're bouncing around on the trampoline and having fun in the backyard, all this kind of stuff. They sing to the tambourines and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. The point here is this, they live pretty decent lives, happy lives. Their businesses aren't suffering, their families aren't suffering, and their homes seem to be pretty safe. So he's saying, friends, if you look around and take in the facts, you will see that the wicked actually live in prosperity. In other words, what you are claiming, the wicked somehow have a brief time of joy and then they have ruin, is not true when you look around. Secondly, well, actually, part of the argument here is this. Should their growing families and safe, secure homes and fruitful businesses and joyful gatherings be evidence that the wicked are actually righteous people? Does their prosperity prove that they're in the right before God? The answer, of course, is no. It doesn't prove that they're good. The prosperity of the wicked undermines the system of retribution. So why are you telling me that my suffering is because of my sin when the wicked actually live in prosperity? It doesn't jive with reality, friends. That's what he's saying. Now notice the, the attitude. Um, it's the prosperity of the wicked. Then secondly, the attitude here of the wicked. Job paints a picture of what is going on in the heart of these prosperous, wicked people. Verse 14. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire to, the knowledge of your ways. Right? They're basically saying, in effect, we don't need God. We have all we need. We, why would we listen to him? Everything is good. There's no reason to, to serve him or pray to him. Who is this God anyway, the Almighty? And why would we pay attention to him? What's in it for us? And friends, if you remember the beginning of the story, how Satan comes to God and says the only reason that Job 
is worshiping you is because of all the blessings you give him. He's saying, the reason Job followed you is because he was asking the question, what's in it for me? My friends, in verse 16, we see that the wicked take credit for their own prosperity. They're not prosperous because they are righteous. The opposite is true. They are wicked and they also prosper. So Job quickly distances himself from that kind of attitude, saying the counsel of the wicked is far from me. He wants nothing to do with the wicked, even if they are prosperous. So they often live long. Secondly, they often avoid suffering. There's two questions that Job answers in this section relating to the suffering of the wicked. Number one, how often do you see the wicked suffer? Verse 17, how often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that their calamity comes upon them, that God distributes pain in his anger, that they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away? You say that the wicked don't enjoy life, and are quickly snuffed out. But really, how often is that what you observe? A simple look at mankind reveals that what you're saying is not so. What is true is that the wicked seem to be secure in this world, while it is the righteous who suffer. Look, if you would, at Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Because the psalmist here wrestles with the same thing. Psalm 73, beginning at verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. For as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here's a godly person wrestling with the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lofty, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak this, I would have betrayed the generation of children." He's looking out and he's saying, I don't get it. It's the wicked that seem to prosper. And friends, that's the point. As you look around, you'll see that the claim of Job's friends is not actually true. Secondly, does God store up the sin of the wicked, and take it out on their children. This is what it says in verse 19. You say, God stores up their iniquity for their children. In other words, the, the father who's wicked will bring judgment to his children. But what does scripture actually tell us? It tells us that the fathers are not punished for the sins of the children or the children for the sins of their fathers. We see that in Jeremiah 31, verses 29 and following. Now, certainly parents may be deeply hurt by the sins of their children, and certainly children may suffer from the, the consequences of their parents' sin, but God's judgment is always just. You will stand before God because of the sin that you have committed not because of the sin that your father or mother committed or that your children have committed. And what Job's friends were saying is that, no, they are, they are going to be the ones who are going to stand and take the brunt of that. It was extremely cruel in, in light of what Job went through for his friends to even speak that way about his suffering. But such a view would allow the wicked person to escape their own 
suffering. In other words, I can, I can leave my suffering and the punishment to my future generations. I mean, really, why do they care what happens to their houses and their riches when they are gone to the next life? They can't take it with them. They don't care, really, ultimately, who gets it or whether it's taken away. Third question here, or statement. Is experience the best teacher? Are we supposed to figure out God's ways based on our own experiences? And friends, here is when we talk about we are all counselors. The question is, what kind of counsel are you giving? And many times, our counsel is not the fruit of the word of God in our lives, it is often the fruit of our learned experiences. And sometimes we present those as gospel truths. Now, notice it says in verse 22, will any teach God knowledge seeing that he judges those who are on high? That's the whole experiential thing. And it goes on, it says, one person dies having lived a life full of ease, security, and prosperity. Another dies having lived in hardship, suffering without prosperity. This is verses 23, 24, and 25, and 26. But we're told they both die, and their bodies are turned to dust. What Job is saying is this, there's no connection between how one lives, their relationship to God, and the quality of their life. Sometimes the wicked prosper and live full lives, and sometimes they suffer. Sometimes the righteous prosper and live full lives, and sometimes they suffer. And so that brings Job to his third point, and that is this, that the wicked typically die just like everyone else. Now, he's not talking about how they die, but he's talking about the fact that they do die. You say the wicked die such horrible deaths, but the truth be told, when you look around, the wicked typically die like everyone else. They lie down in the dust, and the worms cover them. And then we get to Job's conclusion. And it begins in verse 27 with the word, behold. And it's a direct challenge to the false ideology of the doctrine of retribution that, that these friends not only embrace, but they're using to frame their arguments of condemnation of Job's claim for innocence. And here's what he says, basically. Number one, I know what you're doing. Verse 27, behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. I know. With all this broken record talk about the wicked, you're saying to me, the wicked will come to ruin. Job, you have come to ruin Therefore, Job, you must be a wicked person. See, that's a syllogism. If this is true, and this is true, then this is true. But it's a syllogism that doesn't work. And rather than comfort him, their counsel has wronged him. That's verse 27. And secondly, I want you to notice here, he says, your theory or your ideology doesn't work in the real world. It doesn't fall in line with what man actually experiences. And he's going to kind of unpack it just in four ways, just briefly kind of touch on them here. The first one is this. How do you know that your claims are true? Verse 28. For you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked live. And understand, the prince and the wicked are in parallel here. So the prince is a wicked prince, okay? It's, how, it's just poetry. It's how it works. You say that the wicked will be uprooted and destroyed, their houses, their legacies, their descendants, so that there is no longer any trace of them on the earth. But have you actually asked for testimony to that theory? And he goes on and asks the next question. Have you tested your theory then with eyewitness testimony? Verse 29. Have you not asked those who travel the roads and do not accept their testimony that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he is rescued in the day of his wrath? And what he's saying here is this. Listen, in, 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 that, in that kind of era, people didn't travel like we do today. People live in the same villages, in the same towns. I remember when I was living in England, 
Uh, one of the things that you could do is you could, you could, actually, you could actually understand um, that someone lived in a village or a town that was five miles away because the, the kind of nuances in the language had been so rooted in the history of that era because people lived in those regions. You could tell this person was from Frimley or from Camberley or from Basingstoke because there were nuances in how they expressed things. We don't get that in the States. We just have kind of like, you know, the, the West kind of like, you know, hi there, you know, and you have the, the Michigan kind of nasally speak, and then you have the y'all come back now, Southern speak, you know. So it's really general areas. But in, in this kind of a context, people typically lived in their village and town, and they didn't go away much at all. And so his point is saying this, if you talk to people who travel a lot, they will tell you as they have wandered the earth that the wicked actually live in prosperity. They actually do pretty well. That they are not ones who typically are experiencing the kind of calamity that righteous people are experiencing. He's actually spared in that day. And then the next question, since you believe that the wicked will die an early death, have you ever taken time to warn them? Who declares his way to his face? Who repays him for what he has done? Are you doing that? Have you ever warned the wicked face to face about where their wickedness is leading them? If not, then why are you warning me, a righteous man who knows he's innocent, about his future. It's pretty inconsistent, if you ask me. The last question, when the wicked die, there are plenty of people who honor them. When he's carried to the grave, which is, watch is kept over his tomb. Mankind follows after him. He has, he has a following. So there's this kind of straw man argument that his friends are presenting about the wicked. And Job is going line by line saying, it's not true, it's not true, it's not true. Then we get to the final part of his conclusion here. Verse 34, he says, how then will you comfort me with empty nothings? But I've just punched holes in your system and shown you that your system doesn't work. It is empty. It is powerless to help me in my suffering. There's nothing left of your answers, but falsehood. You can't comfort me with empty nothings. What you're saying is just a lot of nonsense. So hear this. Your continuing, continual hammering of the nail of the doctrine of retribution will not work. It causes more damage than it helps. So please stop. Please understand this. You cannot deduce from a person's situation the true state of his or her heart. You have nothing left in your system that will add anything to my suffering, or at least understanding my suffering. Now, I want to just briefly bring things to a close because we're just going to walk through. That's what we've done. We've walked through argument A and how Job refutes that. But there's some things in here that we need to kind of see in the interaction that I think are helpful for us as we are seeking to try and help people, okay? Number one, there's a call to be confident. In our text and in the previous context, we see that Job is rising up in the midst of his suffering while his friends are tormenting him with this this doctrine of retribution, he's rising up to hold on to what he knows to be true, and that is that his Redeemer lives. His advocate that is in heaven, uh, his um, mediator and his Redeemer lives. And it's a faith that grounds Job so much that he can stand up to the empty counsel of his friends and push back with an honest evaluation of their system. So in in a similar way, friends, we are surrounded by the voices of society and uh, that calls us to abandon our faith in Christ and the authority of Scripture and to embrace the system of their worldview. 
And at various seasons in history and at various um, places, the voices of the world system have been aggressive against the gospel, and in particular, biblically-based Christianity. And these voices are often a broken record. You know, you heard the expression, you, you haven't heard anything new under the sun. A lot of the arguments and ideologies are not new. They're just new to now. And there might be things that are happening in this world that kind of repackage them with technology and that kind of stuff. But the arguments are the same. But as followers of Christ, we need to be reminded of who we are and whom we serve and how many of those who are ungodly view our faith in Christ. And so it's good for us to, to be confident by reminding ourselves of what Jesus says to his disciples. John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. That's what the world wants. Come over to our side. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the, world, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Those Jesus' words. So just remind yourself in the midst of the barrage of voices. I know it's tough out there. And I know some of you guys are in really difficult, difficult situations where the, the, the wisdom of the world is just being pummeled at you. And even if you just take a simple stance on biblical truth, it's just like pummeled at you even more. And you're experiencing it. But listen again also to the Apostle Paul in his second letter to Timothy, his last letter. He speaks clearly about the opposition that is present in the world at that time. He says that there'll be false teachers who oppose the truth, who would creep into households and, and whose teaching would spread like gangrene. He also talks about a particular man, Alexander the coppersmith, who opposed the spread of the gospel. In particular, the nuance there is that he let the authorities know of, of uh, Paul's presence and resulted in his imprisonment in jail. And throughout that same letter, Paul emphasizes to his protege, the need to not be ashamed of the gospel, to not be quarrelsome, but to be kind, to guard the good deposit entrusted to him, and to entrust that gospel to faithful men who will be able to entrust it to others also. Friends, what we are experiencing now is nothing new. It's the same stuff. You just do, do some search of history, and you'll see there are times in history where the church struggled, and they were the recipients of all sorts of arrows from the world saying, you're out to lunch, Christians. We're in the same kind of era today. So be confident. Be confident that you are a child of God and that you are called to the same things as others who have gone before you. Secondly, it's a call to be clear-minded. Now, I use the expression clear-minded because Job's friends are guilty of what we're calling being closed-minded. They, they have these blinders on them. They're only looking at the facts that they want to see, right? It looks like a horse that that's, has blinders on specifically so he won't be distracted by all the traffic that's out there. He can keep his focus where it needs to be. They have these blinders where they're saying we're not, we're not willing to look at any other evidence. We have already figured out what our system is. And then, of course, the opposite of that is being open-minded. And the idea of being open-minded is just kind of being fluid, right? Always open to adjusting your system. Nothing is really ever settled. The only conviction is to not actually hold tightly to any particular system because it always needs to be ready to be adjusted with whatever is blowing in and out of culture at that point in time. And friends, in today's world... To be open-minded is to be reasonable and loving, let me put those in quotes, and accepting. It is to embrace the thinking of the world system as the authority and the standard. It is to embrace the ideas that promoted by that system are in opposition to what we hold dear in Scripture. So in today's world, Bible-believing Christians are often painted with the broad brush of being closed-minded. 
because we hold to a set of principles that are seemingly rooted in a man-made book. Now, if we're honest, let's just be honest here. There are many who do live their lives under the umbrella of the label Christianity who are closed-minded. And by that, I mean they, they, they simply live out of a set of rules. They keep and follow their traditions carefully. Um, they stop asking questions about what God has revealed in Scripture. They're, they're locked in a system that is shut off to any new thoughts and challenges. But friends, we're called not to be closed-minded or open-minded, but I just want to use this expression, we're, we're called to be clear-minded. And what that means is that we are willing to honestly look at the culture before us that is always changing and to continually ask questions that are hard, but to view it through the lens of Scripture. We're always trying to see clearly through the lens of Scripture. And sometimes what we'll find is that actually we have been looking at Scripture with a little bit of a nuance that may not be what Scripture actually intended. And we must always be willing to do that. Now, there are certain core things that are, that'll always be true. Jesus is the Son of God. That won't change. Culture's not going to cause me to change that. But there may be some practices. There may be some principles. There may be some things that, that we do that we need to revisit and rethink through how we're going to do them and how God actually wants us to do them. And so it's, it means we have to constantly be, be reformed by Scripture over and over and over again in the culture in which we live. We're called to be clear-minded. If we are not friends, then we'll run the risk of slipping into kind of a legalistic mindset that doesn't want to re-examine our positions again. Just says, no, this is the way it is. Psh, that's it. You're not even thinking anymore. Doesn't need, I don't have to read the Bible. I already know what the rules are. I'm just going to live by them. You see, that's what happens when we allow ourselves to be closed-minded. But we need to be a thinking people. God has called us to be a thinking people. All right? Finally here, it's a call to be compassionate. What we don't see in this text is compassion. We don't see Job's friends speaking gently, cautiously, and helpfully. The theme of comfort is at the beginning of Job's speech, it's at the end of Job's speech. And the reason it's there is because he is not being comforted by their presence or their words. And so being compassionate means that we care but it also means that we're willing to fight against being impatient with them. Those who are suffering need healthy counsel and guidance from the scriptures in a way that brings comfort and healing. But they also need for us to put on the garments of patience and fight for them and with them through their struggle. And friends, sometimes getting through a struggle takes time. So remember, change is typically a process. And so for someone who is suffering, we need to be reminded of three T's. Three T's. Time, tenderness, and truth. Helping people takes time. Embracing God's truth doesn't always happen in a moment. Helping people takes a tenderness, a gentleness. but it also takes truth. And so friends, as God calls us to help people whose ideologies may be misplaced, he's also called us then to not be like Job's friends, but to come alongside people, taking our time, being tender with the truth of God's word for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. And Lord, we see the struggle that Job has been going through. And Lord, it's, it's, it's daunting just to read it at times. This is a long, drawn-out battle of words. Hearts that are committed. Some are misplaced. 
but also a man who's innocent trying to hold his ground. And Lord, those are, those are difficult times. And Lord, as we, as we study through this, all of us are thinking about the kinds of struggles and sufferings and interactions that we go through. And Lord, I ask that you would allow what we've walked through today to be a means of clarity and help to we who are your children. Help us to stand firmly in who you are. Help us, Lord, to stand patiently with one another. And Lord, help us to flesh out the truth in ways that will be a true comfort and encouragement to those who are suffering. And Lord, just pray for those who may be going through particular things right now whose hearts are heavy. Give them wisdom. Give them discernment. Give them, Lord, a strength of control that only comes from you to be able to face their trial in such a way that would bring glory to your name. We ask in your precious name.